Well, Alphabet Inc.'s Google said today it has seen Russian hackers well known to law enforcement engaging in espionage, phishing campaigns, and other attacks targeting Ukraine and its European allies in recent weeks. Russia's ability and tendency to turn to cyber attacks to harm other countries is well documented. Ukraine has long been a testing ground, one of Kremlin's top targets. And with Russia's invasion of its neighbor, those attacks are likely again intensifying. And experts warn those battles in cyberspace can easily and quickly jump borders. Joining me now is Justin Sherman. He's a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative in Washington. Thanks for being here tonight. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I know this is not a new topic for you. Um, tell me a bit about the research that you do and, and why it's so important right now. I work on the geopolitics and security of the internet, everything from protecting and securing the data and the messages we send each other to broader issues of diplomacy and conflict and technology. Um, a lot of that work has focused on Russia, looking at what the Russian government does and thinks. And so that, uh, unfortunately, is, is quite relevant of late. Tell me a bit about that, because I think there is a, uh, a perception, at least amongst the average, per the average person, that Russia has this incredibly sophisticated and wide-reaching sort of cyber attack capacity. Is that the case? And how have we seen that manifest itself over the last uh, 10 or 12 days? The Russian government does have sophisticated uh, hacking capabilities. Um, we, you know, I'll talk about the past ten or twelve days in a second, but it's it's worth actually going back a bit further. Uh, in the early two thousands, you mainly saw the Russian government using hacking to collect intelligence, so supplementing what they're getting through human spies and other sources to inform decision making. But as you got later on, 2005, 2006, 2007, you started to see the Russian government take more aggressive action in cyberspace, and you started to see them hack uh, during actual conflicts. In the 2008 Russo-Georgian War, for example, the Kremlin physically restricted journalists' access to the conflict zone so it could spread propaganda and disinformation about it. And then when independent journalists started blogging online and using the internet to share what was actually happening, they hacked into and shut down a bunch of those websites um, so that people couldn't see what was going on. So all to say, we've seen capabilities like this over the years, whether hacking into US election systems or turning off power grids in Ukraine. And so what we've seen in the last week and a half has been pretty mild compared to what the Russian government could do. They've taken sites offline, they've planted malware, they've certainly done a good amount of hacking, but we still should be concerned about uh, about what the Kremlin might do in the coming weeks. Yeah, tell me a bit about that, because again, we we thought there would be not only a ground war in this war between, in this war in Ukraine, but we also all suspected, I think, that there would be a, a war in cyberspace as well. And you haven't seen it heat up quite as much as perhaps we might have expected? That's right. There, as I mentioned, have been some operations. Russian hackers have taken Ukrainian government and other websites offline. This is a big part of controlling the information that gets disseminated. They've also um, put malware on Ukrainian bank systems. They've targeted 
contractors that support the Ukrainian government in other countries like Latvia and Lithuania. Uh, the Belarusian military has been hacking uh, for Russia as well. Um, but as you had said, compared to what some had expected, some large scale shutdowns of power grids or really, really widespread malware, we haven't seen that or we haven't at least noticed that publicly. War is chaotic. The fog of war is a term for a reason, right? It's hard to know what's going on. I'm sure we'll uh, realize much more about the cyber stuff in you know months from now, but they certainly have not uh, used some of the capabilities that people thought they might so far. Given that, how vulnerable are Western nations such as the US, Canada, European nations, how vulnerable are they still to these sorts of attacks given the circumstances in Ukraine? Quite vulnerable. The United States... Canada, the UK, many Western countries have very sophisticated cyber capabilities. The challenge is we also have very internet-connected societies. So everything from our, our proverbial smart toaster, right, to power grids, uh, water treatment plants, banks, hospitals, all of that is increasingly connected to the internet. And so if you're a, a government like the Putin regime and you're looking at the West and saying, I'm furious about these sanctions or I want to you know, undermine their economy or what have you, there are lots of different places you could hit with, with cyber attacks to do just that. And you've also mentioned in, in interviews or in your writings that it's not just the Russian state that can be operational, so to speak, but they also have non-state actors. Who are they? Yeah, this is a really important point. Uh, the state hackers are very sophisticated, as as we've talked about, but cyber criminals, front companies, patriotic hackers, there are all these other non-state entities that the Kremlin finances or secretly backs or recruits or ignores, uh, and it can use this really opaque, complex proxy web uh, to hack as well. Just to give a couple examples, there have been past instances where Putin or some other Kremlin official quite literally gets on television and starts criticizing a foreign government. And then all of these individuals who call themselves patriotic hackers say, well, we support Russia and we hate this place and they start hacking. There have also been many cases where the Russian government wants something done. It wants some entity hacked, but it wants deniability for doing it. And so the FSB, the domestic security service in Russia, will literally call up cyber criminals and say, we need you to do this. Or they'll go to a hacker conference and recruit some hackers and say, we need you to do this. And so those are just a couple examples, but there really is this broad uh, range of folks the Kremlin can draw on far beyond just people in uniform. Is it just money that, that they offer? Or is, it, is there some sense of patriotism as well from the uh, so-called patriotic hackers? It's all of those things. Right. For patriotic hackers, there is absolutely a, a willingness and desire to support the Kremlin to promote what they see as Russia's interests, which of course, in the Putin regime's case is really just Putin's interests and the, the interests of his close 
uh, oligarch circle. Um, for others, it's money. Cybercrime brings in a ton of revenue to Russia, and cybercriminals have pretty much free reign so long as they do two things. One, target foreign entities, not Russian ones. And two, do not undermine the Kremlin, aka with this recent conflict, don't go out and start randomly hacking all these Ukrainian sites before we attack kind of thing. So there's also that motive for some of these cyber criminals, which is every now and then, if the state says we need you to do this, we're going to do it because that's part of that social contract for us to keep uh, to keep doing cybercrime. I'm speaking with Justin Sherman, a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative about Russia's cyber uh, attack capacity, as well as what we've seen in the early days of the war in Ukraine. Uh, right after this, we'll talk a bit more about whether or not we're seeing fewer Russian bots in America. This is something that's come up quite a bit. Um, I, I don't know how how comfortable you are speaking with it, but it's something that's, that's been flying around on social media that we're seeing this fewer sort of Russian bots online, uh, or at least on places like Twitter. I'm not sure if that's the case, but also about Russia sort of uh, detaching itself from the world's or sort of the global internet. That's coming up after this. I'm with Justin Sherman, a fellow at the Atlantic Council's Cyber State Craft Initiative. We've been discussing Russia's cyber attack capacities, what we've seen so far uh, during the war in Ukraine. Justin, I'm not sure how much you can speak to this, but there has been a lot of speculation online, some of it refuted by now, that in fact, since this war began, we're actually seeing less, call it mingling from uh, from Russian interests uh, around the world and other issues such as American politics or Canadian politics, for that matter. Is that the case? It's an interesting question. It's certainly possible. I'm not, I'm not the expert on um, sort of the Russian troll account numbers and everything online. But I will say two things. One is that uh, the Russian government has long had a Ukraine interest when it interferes in foreign elections. That includes the US election. Um, and I actually have a report coming out this week with, with Gavin Wild on this issue, which is that when Russia interfered in the US election in 2016, Ukraine was a huge theme. Putin really wanted to try and shape uh, U.S. policy towards Ukraine uh, in a more Kremlin-favorable way. The second thing is that we have seen Russia seemingly focus a lot of its information operations against Ukraine in recent weeks. There have been myriad uh, false news stories published, state media outlets pumping out disinformation. There recently uh, was a report from the Ukrainian security services that the Russians have infiltrated a, a bunch of telegram channels to spread disinformation and spy on people. So um, again, I, I'm not sure about the, the overall numbers or not, but we've certainly seen a huge effort by the Kremlin to lie, to spread propaganda, to uh, you know add to the confusion around its, its illegal war on Ukraine. In the reverse, we've also seen hackers targeting Russia now. In term, I, I believe there was there was state TV was hacked. We've seen uh, government websites taken down in Russia as well. How much is it going back the other way since this war began? This is a fascinating question, and largely, it seems to be the same kind of stuff we're seeing the other way, where Russian websites have been taken offline. Some of them have been defaced, but 
we haven't seen publicly any, you know, let's say large scale hack of like a Russian power grid or something like that. So it's been, it's been a bit of, of tit for tat in that sense. What's interesting and to some extent unprecedented uh, in the Ukraine case is the Ukrainian government saying, if you're a hacker in Ukraine, point at Russia and go at it. If you're a hacker in the global community and you oppose this illegal war on our country, go at Russia. So we are seeing, you know, ostensibly non-state hackers, just random people in Ukraine and other places hack Russian things, which is really, really interesting. Um, it sort of adds, right, like, like we've been talking about to the fact that it's not just people in uniform. There's a really complex uh, array of forces uh, at play here. I know militarily, we're well aware of each other's nuclear arsenals. We're well aware of each other's, you know, the size of each other's individual militaries. Do we have any idea of how fair a fight it is when it's Russia and its allies versus the West and its allies in cyberspace? The Western governments know that. Um, you know, in, in, in the unclassified space, we have very limited visibility. But but what we do know is a couple things. One, the Western governments have very sophisticated cyber capabilities. They also have a lot of vulnerabilities. Two is that Russia likes using many, many groups beyond the military. It's using criminals, using front companies. So when we see, for example, the Belarusian military hacking Ukrainian targets for the Kremlin, that's exactly the kind of weird quasi-proxy stuff that the Kremlin likes doing. Um, But the last point is that Russia has been far more willing than many other governments, even in China, to launch destructive cyber attacks, to shut things down, to destroy systems, Uh, And so that's really one of the concerns here in the coming weeks is will the Russian government try to do that kind of thing to, for example, take out energy and communication systems in Ukraine? Strike one is sort of being the next level of this conflict, I guess. Mm -hmm. The last topic I was going to bring up was simply I spent some time in China, spent some time in Russia, and you notice how different the internet is in both countries. And really, it's just the presence of, of, of Western companies within, uh, within the community there. But how much has Russia in the last 10 days started to splinter itself? You, you commented in an article called Splinternet. How much has Russia started to extract itself from the global online community? Putin has talked, and, and so have other officials, for years now about a domestic Russian internet. You know, almost a decade ago, there were a bunch of policy proposals on this in Russia, um, but it's been pretty pretty limited movement. Companies have resisted; it's not been a priority. There are lots of reasons why. What we've seen in the last few weeks is an unprecedented level of crackdown on foreign technology companies and on the domestic internet. We have seen from a government that usually blocks stuff far less than China blocking and throttling Facebook um, as a walkie-talkie app just the other day, all these different applications because they won't censor uh, that you know things the Kremlin wants censored. We've seen a number of new proposals put out in the past few days to increase the isolation of the Russian internet. So to the extent that a splintered internet in Russia has not happened because of a lack of political will, that might very well be changing. 
in China, they always had the Great Firewall and essentially built a parallel system in many ways um, to what America, to what was offered by the West. In Russia, it doesn't seem to be quite as advanced. Can you put that genie back in the bottle once people have gotten used to YouTube and Facebook and so forth? That's a key question. And it does matter because the Kremlin is dealing with complex domestic political considerations. Look at how many protests there have been in Russia. I mean, for all the rhetoric you see about folks supporting the war, there have also been a number of people protesting against the war on Ukraine. Um, YouTube is the most popular social media platform in Russia. It's even more popular than, than VK, which is Russia's Facebook. And so blocking something like that platform is a big deal. It is, it is a you know big move against uh, the company financially, but uh, there are a lot of Russians who would, would very much notice that, dis- that uh, disruption. Justin Sherman, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me.